Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Stories, profiles, and interviews of resilience, triumph, and courage. My name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me as always, my hostess with the mostest, my beautiful wife. Her name is... Just Jen. Just Jen. And you're along with us as we are moving on down the Hope Train tracks for another session, another day Choo-choo! <laughs> <laughs> Another day of hope-filled stories. And um, I've got an awesome interview today. I'm not, I'm not going to share with you yet okay. who we're going to have on the show. It's a surprise. Yeah, this, this guy, he's hilarious. He's super fun, super successful. I think you'll love it, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But just want to check in. How you doing? How you doing on the uh, day 835 of the pandemic? I'm actually terrified. Are you really? Yeah. I'm not used to you saying that. I know, but did you hear about the murder bees? The murder bees? There's murder bees. I I don't think they're called murder bees. They're murder bees and they'll they're eat like, your I face think they're off. Called, I think they're called murder hornets. They're murder bees. Have you seen what they do? I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I saw one on our balcony. No. Yeah. No. I, I came in the house and I said, Brayden, do not go out there because there was, is a murder bee on our balcony. No, it was a bat. A bat? <laughs> I don't like that either. <laughs> uh, we do have bats and those are terrifying. They are ugly. Nasty. I hear they, they like to eat your hair. What? Yeah. They like to get into your hair and like, I don't know. But Where did you hear this? Probably on the internet. Well, it had to have been true then. Yeah. No. No, they do. They like to get into your hair and like wallow around. Back to murder hornets. Yeah. They're I think there. they're called murder hornets. Okay. No, they're murder bees. No, they're not. I'm calling them murder bees. Oh, Lordy. Okay, whatever. Okay. So the reality <laughs> of it is, is Madden, our youngest, comes and shows me a video. These things catch regular honeybees mm-hmm. midair, snag them, mm-hmm. and then eat their heads that's what was on the balcony no it was that no it was how do you know did you see it catch a bee and eat its head it didn't look like a bumblebee those are our friends (laughs) you know like at disneyland (laughs) bees are our friends oh my word well i i think this is just another thing to add to your list of things to worry about (laughs) yeah so the things to think about other than that i'm good you know, I guess we have to say, Brayden was right in the car on the way down to Disneyland. <laughs> Be in the car. It's <laughs> a funny story. Our uh, third son, Brayden, was strapped into a car seat on the way down to Disneyland. And how old was he at the time? Like five, maybe yeah, four? Yeah, he was little. Four or five at the time. And there was like six or seven of us in the car. And all of a sudden, this bee... <laughs> lands on his shoulder or something like the window was slightly down and it comes in through the window and this kid was was strapped in and all i immediately see is both arms both legs you know because he's in that five point harness like there's no way he can get out he just has his legs go out straight his arms go out straight and his face and his neck and he just screams every vein in his body was just like so big yeah it just popped out and it was it was like he was getting murdered by a <laughs> murder bee, bee. yeah See? exactly you know and i didn't think about this another bee story colby yeah. in my car yeah gets hit in the shoulder with the bee pulls over we're, we're, we're having a family day driving our cars pulls over and then lets one of my cars roll into the other car because of a damn bee it was a murder bee no yeah i'm sure well it was. now it makes the story more believable yeah. maybe it was you know? that, that's the only reason why you'd freak out pull over <laughs> and then have two of my cars you know 
whatever. They just said hi to each other. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm super excited because I'm going to win joke time. It's time for tele-jokes. Yeah, it's, okay. I'm going to win. I'm, I'm confident. I'm going into this. I'm positive. I have mm-hmm. a positive mental attitude. I'm a winner. I'm going to win. <laughs> you are sure due for a win. So I'm going to let you go first because I'm that confident. I always go first, but okay. Ready? Yes. What's a shark's favorite sandwich? What is a shark's favorite sandwich? I don't know what. Peanut butter and jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> you you weren't happy I didn't laugh. I don't even think you get a fake laugh for that one. I think this is this is in the bag. I think I'm gonna win this one. <laughs> You should see the sad <laughs> face that Jennifer is making right now. I already hate. Are your you joke. upset? Your joke's dumb. You haven't <laughs> heard my joke yet. I've already just—it's already there. All right. Okay. Kay. So you ready? Yep. All right. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Love is like a fart. If you have to force it, it's probably crap. Did you know that there's um? <laughs> you didn't laugh at that. <laughs> no. Did you know that there's thirteen in a baker's dozen? How how can you not laugh at that? Did you know that? That was funny. There's 13 in the baker's dozen. Yeah, I know that. That's something that you know when you're five. No. When you go to the donut store. How, how many pieces of bread are in a loaf? I don't know. 26. Why would I know that? Because it's dumb. How did you not laugh at the love is like a fart? Did if you have to force it, it's probably crap. That's uh, funny. Did you tell a joke? I didn't hear. Oh, my word. Was that a joke? That was a joke, yes. Oh. You are not right. I think I won that one. <laughs> no, you were you are purposefully not like you tried not to listen or something. That was that was funny. I was thinking of other things. Baker's dozens. <laughs> and how many cookies that would be or donuts. Jennifer, your <laughs> mind is always in food. All right. Time to get on to our interview since joke time was a fail, obviously, <laughs> on both sides. Hopefully somebody thought we were funny. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite somebody onto the line. We're going to call up Casey Eberhardt. I mean, this guy's got his hands in everything. He is a mover and a shaker. He's a coach. He's a mentor. Um, he has done it all. He even produced a movie being John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. He's owned an equipment leasing company. He ran an amusement park when he was 22. This guy's going to be a fascinating guy to talk to. He sounds like he's all the things. He is all the things. Okay. And I'm super excited to talk with him. So you ready? I'm ready. Let's get him on the line. All right, I've got Casey Eberhardt on the line. Welcome to the show, Casey. How are you today? I am so unbelievably awesome. Thank you so much, Sean and Jen, for having me on the show. It's, it's an unbelievable honor to be here. Well, it's it's truly our uh, pleasure, and thank you so much for your time today. I know you are a busy guy. You are the ideal networker. you got your hands in a lot of different businesses, and I want to frame our story for the listener. And I was reading on your website that literally you started your first business venture at the age of five years old. What was that business venture at five? Yeah, so it actually starts with a little bit of a story before before five, six, seven, you know, that kindergarten, first, second grade kind of time in every kid's life when most kids are out, you know, throwing pine cones at each other and playing Mario Brothers. Um, <laughs> Frogger. My grandfather, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, he had many different businesses around. He had a Model A and Model T Ford restoration business. He had an antique store. He had a cattle, a cattle ranch. He um, had oil wells. He had a bunch of different opportunities for him to 
for an income. Kind of that was my first lesson in multiple streams of income, as the, as the phrase goes. And one day in the antique store, this is in a teeny tiny town in Colorado called Avondale and Fowler, Colorado. It's like population seven. <laughs> and, um, and so he had an antique store. And for those of you that are listening that are on one of the coasts, an antique store in the Midwest is essentially somebody's garage filled with junk that they put the word antique on and sell their overpriced junk <laughs> to people on the coast for a lot of money that think they're amazing, beautiful design elements for their home. Right. Yes. So it is essentially a little bit formalized garage sale. Okay. So (laughs) my granddad, when I was a kid, like literally kindergarten, first grade, when I would go visit him, he would allow me to work in the garage sale or in the antique store. And the deal was that anything I sold, I got to keep the money from. But there was always a catch. He was always trying to teach some business lesson. And so the business lesson that he just drilled into me was, always give way more value than people expect to receive and everything else works itself out. And so the start of my business career started in the antique store when these two ladies came up and they bought these two, we call them insulators, but these two really deep, dense things of glass that sit on the top of a telephone pole um, in the Midwest to keep the wires from touching. And they're so strong that you could literally throw these things on the ground because if they fell from a telephone pole, they had to be strong enough that they wouldn't break. Okay. And they were, they were $2. They were $2. So these ladies came up to the store. They gave us $2. And I looked at my granddad and he raised one of his eyebrows. And I'm like, what does that mean? It basically was like value. I'm like, okay, I don't really know what that means. But I'll, so I put him in a bag. Like I didn't know. I was, I was a kid, right? And I look over at my granddad and he still got this perplexed look on his face. So I was like, okay. So I take these things out of the bag and I wrap them in newspaper. I look over. He's still not satisfied. Now, these things were not going to break no matter what. <laughs> But, but I just kept hearing value, value, value. So I then took him out and I wrapped him in bubble wrap. He still wasn't happy. I then wrapped him in bubble wrap and newspaper and stuck, stuck him in a coffee can and then put them in, in a bag. And at that point, he was not totally satisfied, but satisfied enough. So I was raised to be a gentleman, even at that young of an age. So I went over to the door to the store and I opened up the door and I carried the bag of these two little things out to the car. And the ladies were like, oh, thank you for coming out to the car. Thank you for opening the door, blah, blah, blah. I go to the passenger, the driver's side of the door, and I open the door for the driver. Right? I was raised to always open doors for ladies. So she was a lady. There was a door. I should probably open it. Right? So I opened the door. She got in. And I walked around to the other side of the car. And at that point, I opened up the back seat of the car and the front seat of the car. The front seat was for the passenger. But the back seat, I took that bag that had the coffee can, that had the bubble wrap and the newspaper wrap, these two things of glass. And I put that in the back seat of the car, and I actually seat belted the bag into the back seat of the car for safe (laughs) driving. Right? Now you can imagine, like a six-year-old, five-year-old, like, doing this. This is like kindergarten, first grade. Well, the lady in the driver's side, or passenger side, was so moved that she actually took out a $20 bill and tipped me $20. Okay? So here was a $2 purchase. And because I added value, meaning I wrapped it properly, I took it out, I treated the customer right, I opened the door, I was a perfect little gentleman, probably didn't hurt that I was five, uh, <laughs> and I ended up getting a $20 bill on it. Wow. Well, at that second, in that, in that nanosecond, I understood what my granddad was trying to teach me, and that is by just being nice mm-hmm. and over-exceeding what people were expecting, the benefits would come your way. Like, I didn't know anything else. 
So when I came home, I grew up in a little town outside of Seattle, Washington called Puyallup. And my first business, these are back, remember, this is back in the late 70s going into the 80s. I decided that I was going to run several businesses simultaneously because I wasn't always in Colorado. So one thing I did was I went around to all of the people in the neighborhood and I asked them to save their newspapers and I would take their newspapers to the recycling bin for them. So I would, every week, I would go around the neighborhood and I would collect everybody's newspapers and then I would have my dad take me to the recycling center and I would recycle all those newspapers and put that money straight away in my pocket. And that really was one of the first ways where I felt I was adding value because a lot of people those days would get newspapers and they just stack them up in their garage and they would stack there forever and then they couldn't figure out how to get rid of them. This is what I love about that story is even even at a young age, you could see the problem. You could see a way that you could solve the problem. And of course, in solving the problem, add value. And I love the lesson that your grandfather taught you because I, I know exactly what you're talking about in that moment to fire that off and go, okay, that right there has been something that has stayed with you for the rest of your life. And you've remembered that lesson in all aspects of your business. But to take that and then create a new opportunity out of it before there was ever really the, the known need, I love it. I love that story. As a kid, I was just always fascinated by looking for an opportunity to have a customer thank me. Like, that was what drove me. And I know that sounds a little bit complex and weird, but from an early <laughs> age, my adrenaline wasn't in playing sports. My adrenaline wasn't because people told me they loved me. My adrenaline was caused by me having some exchange of value with a potential customer and having them feel as though they got the better end of the bargain. Yeah. That was always kind of my ideal. So, so we did, I mean, I did some fun things like, I'll, I'll give you two more small ones. In those days, Hot Wheels, uh, those little racing cars were super fun. Mm -hmm. So I had a whole thing in the neighborhood where I would do Hot Wheels races down one of our neighbor's steep driveway. <laughs> So we did Hot Wheels races, and in those days, I, my brother was a pretty fancy BMX racer. I was just a hanger-oner. I had no <laughs> skill set, but I got all the benefits of him being really awesome because my parents wanted to make it fair. Now, he's my younger brother, so <laughs> when I say I was a hanger-oner, it was basically just a recipe to get beat up. It's really what it was. Um, I love that. You know, so I did these Hot Wheels races. So I would literally go around our neighborhood, and I would rent people's lawn chairs from them for like a dollar. <laughs> then I would set the lawn chairs up on the lawn and then I would sell tickets to the neighborhood to come do these Hot Wheels races and I would get trophies and I would sell tickets and I had prizes. And so we made it this whole neighborhood block affair. How old were you at the time when um, you were doing this? I was in like third or fourth grade <laughs> because we were starting to do the Cub Scout. I don't even remember what they were called. The little wooden cars that you carved out of wood and all that. And as one of your projects, and I was like, well, this is way too hard. Why wouldn't I just basically let people pay me to run their car down a driveway? <laughs> right. And then I had, a, you, I had a, you were the I event organizer car. at eight. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, and then moving into like junior high in junior high, I one day there was a store that opened up called Price Savers. Now, Price Savers, I believe was pre-Costco and pre-Sam's Club, but I think Price Savers actually turned into Sam's Club. I'm not really sure. I don't. I, I didn't know it that closely. But one of my favorite candies were those little tiny red gummy Swedish fish. I don't know if you remember those. Yes. Yeah, they're, um, they're still here. <laughs> and Yeah. 
So I bought a box of those and took it to school with me. And what I found was that kids were just clamoring to have one of these stupid sweetest fish between classes. <laughs> I was like, oh, I might be onto something here. So, um, so I went. I took I took my allowance, and my allowance, by the way, is my own set allowance. I always earned my own money. I never, I never once, I don't think, ever took an allowance from my parents because my feeling was, if I earn the money, I can buy what I want with it. If you give me the money, then I, there are strings attached. So. <laughs> Uh, so I would go to Price Club and I would buy Tootsie Pops, the Tootsie Rolls with the, the or the, the sucker Tootsie Pops yes. and Swedish Fish. And then I had, had a friend of mine create this whole inside of a locker became a, um, a candy store. So I would carry my books in my backpack, which hurt, but then in the <laughs> middle of class, between classes, I'd open up my locker and it was basically just like Casey's pantry in there. And I would just sell stuff all day long. And what happened was it took off like crazy. I mean, I was making about a hundred dollars a day selling candy between classes. It was, are you kidding? This is like in the, I mean, the early eighties, right? Is in, yeah, this is in, this is, well, I, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was whenever the Go-Go's came out with their first <laughs> album called Beauty and the Beat. And I will tell you why I know that. <laughs> I will tell you why I know that because I got called into the principal's office and the principal said to me, if I find one more Tootsie Roll or Tootsie Pop wrapper on the floor, you're going to stay after school and sweep this entire school floor. And I said, okay. I said, well, let me make sure I understand exactly what you're saying. Now, I will say as just a, a side note to the story. My mom was a teacher in the school district and an educator. She was a vice principal at, a, at the high school at the time I was in junior high. So I knew a lot of my teachers and admin people on a personal level just because they would come to the house or whatever. So Mr. McKamey was his name. And, uh, and I said, I said, Mr. McKamey, so let me make sure I understand this. You're telling me that even if it's not my Tootsie wrapper, if you find a Tootsie wrapper on the floor, then I have to sweep the floor. He said, yes. And every day we find a Tootsie wrapper on the floor, you're going to stay after school and sweep the floor. I said, okay, I think I understand my apologies, but <laughs> I got it. Now, now wait, I can just can see your wheels turning. And as my wheels would be turning yeah. too, you're, you're doing this analysis. This is the risk reward. This is the risk reward. <laughs> Keep Absolutely. doing what I'm doing and make about a hundred <laughs> bucks a day. And the maximum liability I have is sweeping the floor after school, which I can probably solve that problem with some of that hundred bucks a day by paying somebody to stay after school to sweep it for me. But anyway, but hundred bucks a day, the well, maximum liability I have is sweeping the floor after. <laughs> do I want to continue to do this or not? Absolutely. And so you know where the story is going. I literally, it was lunchtime when that meeting ended. I walked right into the cafeteria. I stood on a table and I screamed at the top of my lungs. It was dead silent in the room. I said, anybody that buys a Tootsie Floor wrapper for me, just know that if you throw it on the floor, I have to stay after school and sweep the entire floor. So we're going to just dub today as throw your wrapper on the floor day. <laughs> and I, the remainder of the school year, I stayed after school every day and swept the floor. I bought a Walkman so I could listen to my cassette tape that I bought at Kmart with my <laughs> brand new checkbook. <laughs> and checkbook. Uh, the best part about it was I could have hired a friend to sweep the floor but I was so bad at sports that I used sweeping up after school as an excuse that I couldn't play sports. 
So it, it just solved everything. I got paid not to do something I hated. It was amazing. I think you should rename yourself the master of the side hustle. I really like <laughs> yeah. I your your side hustle game oh, man. at an early age was yeah. so on point i cannot stop smiling yeah. jen I, jen crying. has never yeah jen has never laughed this much in an interview I'm crying. I, like I'm she's visualizing like, it i can't believe the way that your little mind thought like it's just so funny to me like because we have four boys and so you know being their mom i've seen them through all these stages so it's just it's crazy to me this this is awesome <laughs> like i mean well, you want them to become like jen you want yeah. them to become true entrepreneurs here's what you do i'm sending them to now, you i know that we I, <laughs> all four of them they're gonna roll in the casey eberhardt side hustle yeah. <laughs> academy <laughs> oh that's actually a great name yeah. it is right I like that. casey eberhardt um, side hustle I academy have, you have don't you remember students. where you got that from i have four students for you exactly <laughs> So, Jen, here's the thing. I'm looking on your Facebook page, uh -huh. and your boys look like they are dressed stylish. Yeah, they are. You want to get them to be an entrepreneur? You tell them, here are the hideous clothes that you're going to buy if I buy them. Go <laughs> buy the worst-looking clothes, have no taste, make them look terrible. Or you can go earn your own money, and you can buy whatever school clothes you want. <laughs> I so like this. I either had... I either had scratchy knees, Levi's corduroy jeans, if my mom chose, or I could have code blue or genera pants if I bought. <laughs> that was called motivation. Genera. Oh, my God. Z Cavaricis. <laughs> Remember Z Cavaricis oh, at the oh time? Gosh, of course. Oh, my goodness. Of course. I bought that right with um, oh, Nautica. We had Nautica, yeah. code blues, Zaviki. Oh. Oh my gosh, the it's peg pants. The peg I pants. <laughs> totally, the clam Had to peg the pants. Oh, I was in. Oh, yep. this is awesome. Jen, Jen and I have, because I started dating her when she was 15, I was 18. We we have a prom picture where I, I think my peg is like don't halfway. Tell too many pe don't, tell, <laughs> don't tell too many people that story. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the statute of limitations is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We have this prom uh, picture. I, I think my peg was halfway up my calf. Yeah. I mean, it just, and then I had white socks on. In white socks and black shoes. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so I, this now makes sense to me how you, at the age of 22 years old, ended up running an amusement park. Like that now, I'm, yeah. I'm now getting, I'm now getting the whole kind of oh, aura yeah. of how oh, that yeah happened so he makes magic happen yes he does yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> well remember i come from, i mean i didn't know anything other than trying to add value to a customer right and mm -hmm. so when i was 15 my dad was a veterinarian at the local amusement park they had a little petting zoo and so i would go there and watch my dad you know fix the animals or whatever and i just i just had a dream of working at this water park amusement park when i was a kid it was two parks same plot of land it was the same same park right and uh, so it was actually really funny because, first off, all I wanted to be was a lifeguard, and I got rejected as a lifeguard. And to this day, I will never forget, Austin Ross was the human resource guy. And when, when they told me that I did not get the job as a lifeguard, but that I was given the job as a ticket taker and a locker sales rep, um, I was completely crushed and devastated because I wanted to be the lifeguard to show off my orange hair that I was doing with sun in. <laughs> And just stand out in the sun. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I love I, it. Well, I wasn't that fully developed at that point. But, um, <laughs> he, he was just planning so on making when money. He, 
Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's really kind of one of the funny things about how this whole thing sort of unfolded was he told me I was too smart. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm too smart to be a lifeguard, we got a problem. Because to me, that should be the smartest group of the whole bunch. Right? I mean, if you're literally like telling me I'm too smart to guard people's lives, we got we got we have a disconnect somewhere. We got a right? problem. <laughs> we got a problem. So, uh, so the night before that park opened, they had this kind of employee get together, kind of an icebreaker. You know, you're meeting. There's 2,500 employees, so you'd meet all your friends and you'd meet whatever department you were in, and then each department kind of went off, and every employee got to know each other. Kind of an icebreaker thing. And so I found my boss. Her name was Tiffany, and I told her, I said, Tiffany, I said, I know you and I just met, but I'm going to work so hard that I have your job in three years. And she started <laughs> You laughing. said that? And I'm, I did. Hey, and, word, and words I, matter, I, I man. It, you send it out into the universe, words matter. <laughs> well, and I didn't, I didn't realize at the time that that could have been taken really snarky. <laughs> I, I was saying it in like, I'm going to work really hard to make you think I'm awesome enough to hire me for three years. Like that was my thought. It didn't come out that way at the time, but <laughs> she started laughing and she's like, come with me, come with me. And this is a very key, critical, important business lesson. And that was that she took me behind the red velvet stanchion. And she took me behind the scenes of this park. And she introduced me to a guy in an office. His name was Wes. She said, Casey, I want you to meet Wes. I just want you to tell him what you told me. I was like, okay. Well, I said, look, I told Tiffany that I was going to have her job in three years. Like, I'm going to work my butt off. And they both started <laughs> laughing hysterically at me. And I'm like, okay, well, at least I'm like, I don't know who these people are, but they seem like they're important. And I'm behind the scenes while all my dumb friends are out trying to, you know. All those lifeguards out get there. Drunk and yeah, all those lifeguards <laughs> are trying to figure out how they're not as smart as I am, apparently. Right? And so... The two of them start laughing so hard that they take me to even deeper in this office complex. And there is this, uh, he was about 70 years old at the time. And they introduced me to this guy named Byron. Well, here's what, here's what happened. Byron owns the park. It was his park. Byron's son was the general manager who was West Beth. And Wes's wife was Tiffany, my boss, who I just told I'm going to have her job in three years. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> right? So flash forward three years, I not only did I have Tiffany's job, I was well on my way to taking over Wes's job. <laughs> and then something tragic happened about four years in, four or five years in, the park went into bankruptcy. And the reason it went into bankruptcy is it was family run and they love taking care of the employees. You do not need to feed crab and lobster <laughs> to a group of 2,500 kids that are wow. running an amusement park. <laughs> anyway, the park gets bought. This is kind of, I know this is a longer story, but it's, it's, it's kind of funny. It's good. So it's good. I'm sitting there and the park got purchased by a group of professional soccer players and New York Yankees pitching coaches. Okay. Now it seems totally random. Well, the topic I know the least about in the world is sports. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know the names of it. I don't understand. I don't understand the, the, the I, I just, I don't get any of it. The only sports I follow are bull riding and curling. Bull riding because wow. my brother is a bull rider. My brother's a bull rider, so I had to watch that. And curling because I was just like, oh my gosh, 
some stoner somewhere came up with the idea of throwing a rock down an ice path and sleeping in front of it. Anybody that can come up with that and get into the Olympics, I'm in. Right? Just just kind of like no. a kid that came up with, you know, creating a, an event with tickets with Hot Wheels cars down a driveway. Exactly. Exactly. It was it was respect. So exactly, exactly. So basically, when the park got bought, all of the managers had to go in and basically beg for their jobs with this new group. And so I walked in there completely prepared because I knew what my value was and I knew what my philosophy was. And so, and at that time, I had run. I was running every revenue generating department in the park, with the exception of two: group sales and food service. But every other dollar that flowed through that park was kind of came through one of my one of my departments. So I basically sat down and we got a venture capitalist in the room, you got attorneys in the room, you got managers in the room, you got this whole group of buyer uh, new buyers in the room. This whole group of people and I basically walked in and I was like, look guys, here's the deal. Uh, I know that you've got a bunch of questions, but here's what I'm going to tell you. As I see it, you have two options. Option one, you have 60 acres on the I-5 corridor um, with with um, frontage and uh, signage on the I-5 corridor. you got about a half a million dollars in timber in the upper parking lot that needs to be sold off because you need an expansion in the parking lot. So here are your two options. Option one, you doze the, you doze the lumber, you sell the lumber off, you put the park over here, we take this park and we turn it into a park that Six Flags, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the name, a big conglomerate <laughs> is going to buy, buy from us in three years. Option two, you sell off the ride, you pull the park down, you close the park, you you, you basically put up condos and you'll sell those condos off and you'll make out like a bandit and you'll just go spend the rest of your day on a golf course somewhere. I said, so you do the golf course, the condo way, I'm not your guy. You do the amusement park guy, uh, I'll take it over, but I'm only going to do that from the general manager. Give me three years to sell it and we'll go. And he, the one of the venture capitalists said, well, what, what's your overall philosophy? And I said, uh, that's very simple. Uh, my overall philosophy with an amusement park, it comes down to, quite frankly, making every person that walks in this door when they leave not have a single penny in their wallet, in their car, in their change, nothing. I want them to be flat-ass broke when they walk out the door and send us a thank you card at the end. I said, if we can achieve that, then we have created an experience for these customers, the likes of which they've never seen. And I got up and walked out. And the venture capitalist called me. He's like, hey, meet me at the Poodle Dog, which was this greasy spoon, like hellhole diner down in the next town. I didn't know at the time he owned it. But I went down and he's like, look, here's the deal. You got it. You got it. We're going to give you a shot. You've got three years. Do you really think you can do it? And I said, sure. And we had all kinds of issues around that park, you know. But the first thing I did was I just called um, this big conglomerate real estate department. And I said, hey, I'm going to sell our park to you in three years. So if you'll work with me over the next three years, I'll build this park exactly how you want it so that when you walk in, you actually have a park that's built to your specifications, your branding. All you're going to need to do is rip down our signs, put your signs up, and the park will be built for you. And the reason that that worked was because I was trying to add value to the sale before we ever did. And I figured if I could talk them into architecting me and giving me a blueprint for how they wanted a park built, that even if they never bought the park, we would improve our park to their specifications because they were best in show, at, you know, at, at that time and how they did the music park. So, so um, effectively, I, I read between I read between the lines. Effectively, they helped you increase the sales price of the park that they would eventually buy. <laughs> yep, and not only that, I don't normally go into this detail with it just because of all the paperwork, but it's been it's been enough, and the guys wouldn't care. 
I bet on that this big conglomerate would not want to keep our park for very long because we were a seasonal park and most of their parks are year round. Their parks were what are called destination parks. You and your family, you take your three kids and you go to a park, you fly there, you stay at a hotel and you go to the park. Our park, we were in Seattle, so we only had the summertime to be open. A lot of our revenue, I created tons of different revenue streams out of that park. Like we had RV shows and swap meets and conant houses and Christmas stuff, all kinds of stuff. But the park itself was only open Memorial Day to Labor Day. So I made the calculated bet that if they bought our park, they would try to get rid of it when they realized three or four years in that they may not be able to run it year round on their, on their business model. So the way we structured that deal was on a land leaseback. So the guys bought it, and then we sold it to this big conglomerate on a land leaseback, which meant that the park essentially, the land and the rides and everything were actually leased by the owners, and then they had an option to take it over or walk away. And so I made the calculated bet that they would walk away after three or four years, and they walked away after four years. The guys got the park back, and it was built, and it's a cash machine, and they're very, 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 very happy that that all worked out. Now, let me qualify this, and let's just remind everybody that at at this time, how old were you? Were you 22? Were you, like, when did you start working? I did I did eight or nine seasons there, and I started when I was 15, so I was 23, 22, 23. I was just, I was just finishing up college. So I went to college for business. And what I would do is I would come back on the weekend from college. I would work at the park during the week and then I would try to do my classes all like on Thursday and Friday so I could have Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at the park. Just cause so I was how old were you when you told um, this big group that they were going to buy the park from you in three or four years? 20. <laughs> I love that. Wow. Hey, you don't have to play sports. You got other talents. <laughs> I mean, look, so I moved to Los Angeles like right after that. Like the day we closed on the park, I just came to Los Angeles to work in the movie business. And again, if you look at kind of the philosophy the whole time, it's always sort of the same philosophy. I understood the difference between a business owner and an entrepreneur um, as I was growing, right? Because I'm reading like tons of books. I'm, I'm following Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Kiyosaki. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at all of the business leaders and, trying to learn. And what I kind of came up with from a philosophical standpoint, and I don't know if this means anything to other people, it's it's just how I run our portfolio. And that is that there is a difference between somebody that owns a business. Like my dad was a veterinarian, right? He owned the veterinarian business, but it also was a job for him. He was, you could call him an entrepreneur and you could call him a business owner, but I would say he more was a business owner than he was an entrepreneur. Even though there were entrepreneurial elements there, the, for me, the definition of an entrepreneur is somebody that, that pure and simple manages the relationship between risk and reward. So my job as an entrepreneur is to take a dollar bill or a $5 bill or a $20 bill or a $100 bill. Oh, remind me to tell you the banking story of, of the amusement park. That's actually a funny one. Um, <laughs> Everything you've been saying is funny. An, <laughs> you know, my job as an entrepreneur is to send that dollar out into the marketplace, have it make some friends with other dollar bills, and then bring those dollar bills back to me and let me help them and then spread them out and they go bring back their friends. And so 
the banking story is just a different way to take money in a, in a, in a retail environment. I knew that we, we needed to get people to have $1 bills in their account, not just $20 bills. When you go to an ATM and you show up at an amusement park, you got $20 bills in your hand. Well, if little Johnny wants a cotton candy and it's $2, if you've got a $20 in your bill in your pocket, you're not going to necessarily do it. But if I get two $1 bills in your pocket, there's a higher likelihood that you'll spend it just to get rid of it. Right. So true. So we created an, we created an entire program where I had a whole process where if you came into the park, everything that I thought you would buy within the first two hours, we underpriced to get it down to one or two or three or four or five dollars. Because I wanted you to come buy a locker. Normally you go buy a locker at Disneyland, it's nine dollars. At our park, it was two dollars. You would hand me a 20. The way we gave change, most places would give you a 10, a five, and three ones. We would actually give you two fives, eight ones. <laughs> You bought something for a dollar and I had to give you $19 in change. It was two, five, nine, one. <laughs> and we tried to break those twenties down to as small of bills as we possibly could get them down to. And then we put the twenties in an armored car and get them to the bank. Cause we could be robbed pretty <laughs> so, easily at so that time. Smart. So, so smart. I mean, I was like, I was like traveled all over the world teaching this to amusement park owners is how to just break down the money that's coming <laughs> through the park really quickly. Right. Now but, th this um, idea originated with you. Yeah, I, I was just, I was walking behind a dad who his kid wanted cotton candy. I'll never forget, I could picture him today. And I was watching his dad, and his dad opened his wallet, and all he had were 20s, and the kid wanted a $2 bag of cotton candy. And his dad literally said, all I have are 20s. And the kid was like, so? <laughs> and the kid walked away with no cotton candy. So I literally, like, just had a complete epiphany at that exact second. I literally walked to the walked to the cotton candy thing, grabbed like five bags of cotton candy, went and found the kid, and just handed the kid cotton candy. I said, you don't understand what you just did for me. <laughs> like, from a, like, I should, like, pay for your calling. Because literally we started implementing that, and our, um, the amount of money that we took in every day exploded, literally, as we trained this to new, because we did it around food service. We did it around every time you spent money with us, we would try to break the change down and not give you big bills. Like we never, like if you handed us a hundred, we only gave you five back. We didn't even put pens in the cash register for change. <laughs> I didn't want any of that. I wanted I all the big bills. And the, the best part was that the money room was actually awesome because they had to work less because they were just dealing with mainly twenties and hundreds to get them out during the day. Anyway, yeah. That is, that is awesome. Now, what I love about that story is that is also a story about observation, mm -hmm. you know, paying attention, being critical, observing, watching, you know, because you never would have, you never would have connected those dots if you weren't paying attention and present with yep. intention, you know, like, yeah. like, how can I make things better? Always. How can I make it better? How, you know, what's the problem? And I, I love that. I've got a couple of kids that are super observant. And so I, I appreciate that. Oh, about only them. a couple. <laughs> There's right. two that aren't well, and two that are. <laughs> right. Well, the key with being observant and being present is to know what you're observing and why you're observing. I walk through life looking through the lens of how can I add value to the person on the other side of the phone or the other side of the conversation, or the other side of the table, so that they feel like they got the better end of the stick. I mean, that's always been an observation modality for me you know i mean look even before we jumped on this call i am just thinking this like as i'm talking even think about how before we started recording the first thing i did was go into my network and go okay who does sean and jen need to be connected with <laughs> and i believe that the person i'm going to put you in touch with will be like a huge value for for both you and for him 
Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't come onto the call going, okay, well, let me see how I can architect this referral. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not, it's just very like. It's you, organic. You, it's you it's in your DNA now. It's it's just how you're wired is. and how you think. Mm-hmm. And it's how you, yeah. how you do life now. It's just part of your DNA. Yeah. I look at business far more from a perspective of, I'm not particularly like super passionate about every single business. What I am passionate about is whatever business community that business serves, that those customers are taken care of better than any other competitor. That comes from connectivity. So I have built a career on the concept of connectivity is today's new currency. So when we talk about networking or building relationships or making connections or passing referrals, the reality is that that connectivity is the currency. Some people think of currency as dollars or Bitcoin or whatever, but the currency really is the exchange of value to help. All right, so that was our part one interview of Casey Eberhardt, and we're going to do part two tomorrow. So tune in for our interview with him tomorrow because I got to tell you, the laughs keep a coming, and we're going to talk with Casey about how he overcame adversity because it wasn't always sunshine and roses he actually encountered some significant adversity that left him on his floor no money calling his mom wanting to know what the next stage of life was going to bring for him so you won't want to miss that that is going to happen tomorrow so stay tuned